It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the Dare to Unlead podcast, sixth episode, or should I say, le numéro six, for our guest today, who's very fond of France. As you know, we're here looking at uh, key topics addressed in Dare to Unlead, The Art of Relational Leadership in a Fragmented World, the book. We looked at the context and the widespread leadership crisis in the first two episodes with Myron Rogers and then Stove Boyd. Episodes three to five examine what freedoms, uh, freedom brings to leadership. Seeing system sets us free, Jeff Boudreau said. Change agents are walking a fine line, Lois Kelly said, and Lee Bryant offered ways to create autonomy at scale. And today it's time to talk about the second value that I believe is constitutive of successful leadership today, equality. Not egalitarianism, but equality. It's not about ignoring differences between people nor about enshrining those differences, by the way, but about overcoming the relationships of domination and submission that abound in our workplaces and that are so detrimental to collective performance. And to talk about this, I invited Susan Skrupski, to whom I have a deep admiration and gratitude. She is a woman with a thousand lives. After a spectacular, successful start in the advertising industry, followed by some personal setbacks, Susan reinvented herself as an influential analyst in the tech world. And she's then set up in 2012 Change Agents Worldwide, a network of progressive and passionate professionals who collaborate on changing the world of work. That's where I met Susan. And from there, it was my eternal gratitude towards her because that network has been a lifeline for me. Susan didn't stop there, of course, that would be too simple. She went on to contribute her skills to the fight against domestic violence through data, stories, and film. South Dakota, where she spent several years, revealed her as a photographer. And now Susan is beginning her up life in Texas. I can't wait to hear what happens next. Susan is a fighter who impresses me with her courage. A woman who has very directly experienced the violence of patriarchy and who has never given up. She is a talented storyteller, a visionary, an ally, a dear friend, and I'm thrilled to have her here today. Susan, welcome. Bienvenue. Oh, Celine, that was such a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm flattered. Thank you. Well, thank you for for being here. The very very first question I ask my guests is about their art, but you suggested the word superpower instead. So what is your superpower, your unique ability to perform in a certain way to achieve your objectives? Awesome. Yeah, I asked you if I could change that to uh, yeah. superpower because, 
Yeah, because I think that throughout my life, and you're right, I'm like a cat with nine lives, right? I always land on my feet and, you know, reinvent myself. I think that what I have been able to do throughout my professional life and even in my personal life is to treat everyone equally. You know, we're going to be talking about equality and I have never seen a difference between the, you know, very big deal CEOs who I had to interview in the nineties and I had to interpret, you know, what they, what they wanted to explain to the market to, you know, people that, that are so underprivileged and so invisible and unseen. I think my superpower is that I, I have that skill of being able to have empathy and to be able to um, see someone, right? And try to understand their motivation and what their needs are. I really think that if you look at every single thing that I've ever done, I think that that's really why I've been successful. And I think that's why it's taken me to places where I ordinarily wouldn't have been able to go based on my you know, born status in life. Mm. I, s- I said you're a, a storyteller. Where where does this skill come from? How did you develop it? You know, I hate to admit this, but I really do. I'm of the camp that writers are not trained, you know, writers are born. And I've just always been a writer in every single episode of my life and every single thing that I've ever really accomplished, like the big step change movements, it's it's as a result of something I wrote. Now, I'm not the greatest writer in the world, but I'm, I'm an authentic writer. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um, storytelling has just always been part of my life. It's always been from the time I was a child writing short stories for my second grade teacher all the way throughout, um, certainly in tech. So Yeah, it's just been part of my DNA. It's not it's not anything I ever learned. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I tell people is that I never took a writing course. <laughs> I never did. I've never taken a journalism course. I mean, I don't I don't know the mechanics of writing, really. So, yeah. I have found uh, writing extremely empowering as well um, when I started writing my blog. But you, you go several steps beyond me because you really share your personal stories, uh, which I don't. Well, it takes a level of uh, confidence and, and courage, like you said, to be able to put that stuff out there. And and Celine, you know, I have not published my most inner secrets publicly. I mean, I've gratefully been happy with the handful of friends who've supported me on writing some of that stuff. But, uh, but we'll get to that later in, in your questions, because you're one of the answers I have relates specifically to the ability to tell those stories. And we met, uh, I was talking about the blog, my blog started in 2013. I was uh, invited by a colleague of mine to put down stories and ideas on 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 a blog and that's about the time we met when I joined the change agent collective that you had founded just a while earlier what was your intention when you created change agents worldwide so in those early days of what I'll call the social web right so in the days where facebook just came online LinkedIn actually had been around, but people weren't really leveraging it in the way they do today, right? But in those early days of social, everyone who had an interest in the, I would say, the embryonic philosophical base of 
changing the world for the better with technology. And there were so many of us in my demographic and in, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, <laughs> your demographic. We really believe that this te technology would change the world for the better. We really did. And I saw there was a massive opportunity to connect individuals in, in the professional world who shared the same values, regardless of where they were. So my my talent in those days was being able to pick out the star performers in the market just based on their social footprint. <laughs> when, when I'm sure I was introduced to you, all I had to do is see what you were actually publishing and what you were saying and what your, you know, where your values would lie and if you would be able to fit in essentially with what we were trying to build. So the intention with change agents was to create a new model of an organization that that looked like old school consulting, but it really wasn't. It was a way where each individual could be empowered, just as you're doing today, empowered to create your own brand, your own assets, your everything that's unique to you. However, it would be under this umbrella of the same values that everyone else shared, right? So we were looking for an economic model that would make that work. And we got pretty close. I mean, we we actually didn't do too badly in the beginning. So I'm thrilled. I mean, every person that I know who was a part of that change agent network is still a superstar, in my opinion, and is now most of them are performing, you know, at scale in the same way that we really wanted them to. So, yeah, that was my original intention. It was a very original model, uh, gathering consultants, people working on their own already, and internal change agents, right? Yes. Yes. That was what was, was so unique about it is because since we did share the same values, we didn't have that that tension between buyer and seller, right? We had people with the same values who wanted to achieve a higher goal that sort of had a higher purpose, and they knew they could learn from each other in ways that would accelerate that ideology and that vision. So it was absolutely unique. And there were there were some of the, I would say, the service deliverables that we created with change agents that still today, I haven't seen anyone replicate those in the market. And they were, because I know you were asking, were we ahead of our time? Yeah. The answer is absolutely. And I still, I still believe that we were on the, on the edge of well, no, no, no. We were really pioneers, I would say, in the this whole future of work movement, because we were doing these things. Think about it. We were doing this before the pandemic, right? We didn't email anyone, right? Yeah. So yeah, it yeah. was fun. I still am super proud of Change Agents. 2013. It is very possibly, how can I say, a design that can be uh, very successfully replicated by companies, I mean, today already, but uh, in the future, certainly, a sort of a agile and fluid way of, of gathering people independently of their the, the organization they belong to in order to create value together. Uh, a very interesting format. What did you learn from this experience? So I learned a lot about motivating individuals. Again, remember, no one was an employee in this company. I mean, everyone was working of their own volition. And I had to literally sell my vision in order to, to get the support we needed to move forward. So I learned a lot about, believe it or not, about, I don't want to use the word leadership because your book explains why leadership is terrible. <laughs> but 
but acting acting in a way where you can balance the wants and needs and in some instances the egos and the aspirations and the the humanness of individuals to band together to drive toward a goal i learned a lot about that and i i'm super appreciative of it because it made me a better person it made me a better leader <laughs> i got to use that word <laughs> but by example i think what the reason why it, it succeeded is because all of the voices in the network, they were leaders. So there was no leader, there was leading. There was leading and everyone was leading with their strengths. And I feel like that's a model for the future. And very interestingly as well, this was a global non-company, a global group, right? Gathering people across very different cultures and time zones, etc. And it didn't matter really. It did in some ways, and I'll tell you that, remember the timing on this, right? So this was before the 2016 election. So before things got extremely polarized in our politics, it was before Me Too. It was before Black Lives Matter. It was before a lot of these cultural shifts. So one of the rules, if you can recall, that I had was in the network and in the community and in the conversation we wouldn't allow any any talk about politics, sex, or religion. Do you remember this? Yes. <laughs> and there was a little bit of pushback on that. But if you really think about it, especially when you see where we are today, now you understand. Now you know why. Because once we start, if any of the individuals remember, I knew all of them. It was me understanding who everyone was implicitly. I mean, I had almost like dossiers on every change agent. <laughs> and I knew I knew their backgrounds. I knew their politics. I knew their passions on a cultural level. And there was no way if we went into the, some of those areas in the change agent worldwide network, we could have stayed together and been supportive because there are some lines that have to be drawn. And I didn't want to draw those lines. So you can see why it was, um, it was. You can see why it was set up that way. I'm not sure if it could work today. I don't know. Super interesting. And um, I'd love to delve into some of the topics addressed in chapter six of the the book, which is titled "Can There Be Equality at Work?" You addressed a little bit this the, the topic uh, earlier, but this chapter speaks of various aspects of inequality and how that hampers good collective work. And it's illustrated by my own experience as a woman in the workplace. And I know this chapter resonated particularly with you. That's what you said. Why? Well, I'm going to tell, I'm going to answer the question first. Why did it resonate with me? It literally jumped off the page. As a matter of fact, here I brought props. I've got it right here. Because when I, when I read that, <laughs> Celine, you know what... The success that I had in film, okay, remember I did a documentary. We didn't talk about that. But when I did my documentary, I recognized the power of storytelling on a wide scale, on a, on a massive sort of platform where you can get across your views. And when I read that, that one paragraph about your personal experience, I thought, this has to be a film. This has to be a film. It's the same feeling I had when I did my documentary because what I really do believe is that women, let's just talk about women right now. So women who have been oppressed, right? Women need to tell their stories. They need to. And, you know, we all have them. 
We talk amongst ourselves about our stories. But when I saw that, I thought, you know, let me let me just veer into this this topic um, because I spent a lot of time learning about the patriarchy and misogyny, things that I didn't know anything about until I started working on domestic violence. But what I came to realize is that it's not men who are the villains and the enemy. It's the system of patriarchy. And that is where our stories need to be told to the sensible men that are just oblivious to what we actually go through. And I know there are some great films even that are out right now. One of them is nominated for the Oscars, Women Talking. I don't know if you know this one, but there, there are many, many men, if they only knew what it's really like, they would. I think that they would change their point of view and they would be a lot more empathetic toward the struggle. So that that was why that chapter resonated with me because I thought those are great stories. I feel like you have to tell it. And I know you have more. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. I, I told you, Susan, there's a, a part of part of the stories have been um, edited when I wrote the book and when I worked with the, the publisher because uh, they didn't really fit. And others, I just I'm just not ready to say to tell. Maybe later. It's we'll hard. see. It is. It is. It is hard. It's hard. And you're right. It's um, by sharing stories, experience. And I find it sometimes hard to be believed when I share some of those stories with my uh, close one, with my dear, you know, with my husband. Or I find it, um, I find a, a level of, uh, you know, how, how is that possible, really? And it's only when mm. their daughters or or sisters or wives are get you know hit by patriarchy very directly that then things become tangible for some of them. And we need to add something. I think quite important is that patriarchy is not just um, maintained, perpetuated by men. It is also by women. Absolutely. No? We 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 all do that. Uh, at certain levels, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought this up. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been guilty of what I'll call sexism. I'm not so sure I am I would buy into a strict, you know, sub- subservient role for women, but I've definitely seen my examples of me seeing uh, something that I thought or said and through the, you know, the lens of, of sexism and it's, it's bad. So, these issues are systemic, right? So I started thinking yesterday about talking about this and it's almost like an ism. So it's like patriarchy ism, just like communism, just like <laughs> socialism, just like anything, Hinduism, you know, it's a, it's a backdrop in our society that, that just sort of gives us all of these, this overlay and through which we have to navigate the world. And men, a lot of times, because they're born literally, especially, let's talk, let's be serious, white men, white cis men, born into privilege and advantage, they don't know any better. There's a wonderful, actually, I should have put this in the show notes. There's a wonderful podcast by David Foster Wallace, and it was a um, commemoration that he was doing. David Foster Wallace is a famous literary person from the 90s. My kids love his book books. But he talked about there there's a story about two fish. Have you heard this? Or two fish and the one fish comes is it, the older fish is swimming by the younger fish and he says, "How's the water?" 
and they keep swimming and they look at each other and they say, what is water? Right. But you get it. And that was his point. So the men that we know in our lives that we, whom we love, who are, we know are good people, all of the men we worked with and change agents, they're great people. You know, they're great dads, they're great fathers, but they don't know they're swimming in water. We see the water. We know that the water exists. Right. Anyway, but I wanted to talk about as far as equal rights and opportunities versus egalitarianism or or e- equality in a way that doesn't make sense. And I wanted to mention a book that I did put in the show notes, which is Will Storr's The Status Game. So what I have learned about this, and I've come away with this massive introduction to the worst of patriarchy in terms of violence against women, right? And the professional work that I have been enlightened as to how, you know, sexism actually impacted my career is that we're not the same. Sameness is not equality, right? And you mentioned this in the book as well. So that you have skills that I don't have. I have skills that you don't have. We're we're not saying that you and I should be equal. Neither should we be totally equal with men. If men are better at certain physical things, okay. You know, let's just recognize and celebrate everyone for their individual strengths. But as far as equal rights and opportunities, that's where we we take the fight to the streets. That's where the revolution has to begin. Anyway, that's my, that's my. <laughs> Have you seen things improve uh, along the years? Are you optimistic? I think things will improve with the future generations. That's what I think. I haven't seen a lot of improvement, to be quite honest. I've seen some. And certainly, I mean, for instance, uh, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced yet again yesterday for 16 more years. That's progress. So we are seeing some progress. But when you talk about systemic change in terms of this system, this ism, I haven't seen a lot of it because I still see it every day. And I know you do, too. We still see it every day. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we do. And there was a study released in France recently showing that young men um, convey in bigger proportion than, than elder men sexist ideas, cliches. And the authors of the study attributed that in part yeah. to porn yeah. culture. So I am not even extremely optimistic about the younger generations changing things radically for yeah, the better. It's it's a t- it's tough. I mean, and there's so much in terms of influence now on social media and the way that the culture just spins out uh, without being able even even able to predict, you know, in that way how people will react. So I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I do see, and again, from my own personal experience, I do see it in, with my children and their friends and the conversations they have, the books they read, the movies they watch, you know, but again, I could be in a bubble. So yeah, I don't know is, is a good, that's mm. good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what should, uh, in your opinion, leaders and maybe all of us uh, pay more attention to in order to support, uh, expand, increase this uh, equality among people at work in particular? You know, there was an article, I just saw it today on Twitter. As a matter of fact, one of our investors retweeted it, but it's a story in Forbes, and I'm going to read it after we're done. But it's about how empathy is the best leadership quality 
you know, I know we're, we're talking about not leading, but empathy, if you lead with empathy or if you are empathetic, I feel that that is really is going to be so important going forward. But real empathy, not not empathy and listening through a filter, right, based on your own hidden agenda, but really having compassion and seeing the individual and understanding how can I create an environment where this person can be successful and they can work through some of their own internal self-doubt, right? So I feel like that's, that's a skill. That's what leaders need to know for the future. But it seems that many of them believe they are and they are empathetic already and don't realize at all that their own, the shadow they cast onto others, for example. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because of their, their, their place and their power and privilege in the, whether it's a hierarchy, whether it's in the family, you know, you take your, your social dynamic and you talk about women, women are just as bad and in some ways worse. I mean, the, the most brutal, brutal brush ups that I've had professionally have not been with men. <laughs> it has been with women. And I don't know how often you talk about this, but one of the things that I've read in the feminist literature or in the stories that I've read around this topic is that it's been so hard for women to compete that when they do compete, and I know you mentioned this in the book, they act like men, but not only do they act like men, they act like bad men, <laughs> right? They act like, they act like the worst, the worst men, right? <laughs> right? So it's extremely unfortunate. And how we can change that, I don't know. I mean, look at the, again, just look at the voter records here in the United States and who's voting for whom. I mean, you can see that it's not, I keep trying to explain the problem is not men, it's patriarchy and it's the oppression and being able to have equal rights is really what we're after. Yeah. I know I'm just mm. rambling. So do you think men and women are capable of working really well together? And if yes, what does it take? You know, in my experience, I, I do because they I have worked really well together with men. And, you know, I remember you actually brought it to my attention. One time we had a board meeting. Do you remember this? We had our first board meeting for change agents and it was just me and five men. <laughs> and you commented, you said, hmm, it looks so, you know, stark in this, in this photo. But my comment to you was, yeah, one of me, five of them, I'm more powerful than they are. <laughs> you know, like I'm like it takes five of them <laughs> to deal with me, right? <laughs> and then what was cute about it is that they all chimed in. They said, "Yeah, she's absolutely right." You know, so I have worked really well with men and I I find men are easy to deal with in business because they seem to just cut right to the chase. You know what their agenda is most of the time. They don't have that inner voice that we have because we have to be so careful that somebody's going to stomp on us, mm -hmm. right? So I just feel if you're a confident woman, it's easier sometimes to deal with men. And with women, a lot of other factors come into play. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. And that, that's a podcast unto itself, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, so, Susan, when a young woman, uh, a young professional woman comes to you and asks for advice, what would you tell them? I would tell them to read your book, Celine. What do you think I would tell them? <laughs> 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 um, um, uh, 
I would tell them, don't be intimidated. Don't, just don't. Just be an advocate. You are your best self-advocate. I mean, one of the things that has empowered me throughout my life is to really take a moment and reflect, okay, I know I'm in a really bad situation right now. (laughs) However, it doesn't mean that I'm incompetent. It doesn't mean that I'm less worthy. It means that this is not my time. (laughs) This is a bad time and I'm going to move through this. And what I do is I look, because you know all my, my little vignette short stories, I think back on the things that I have achieved and I summon up that courage and that that ambition and that strength to move through something that's bad. I mean, that if I had to tell a young professional anything, I would say, do not be intimidated and rest on your laurels. If you've earned that crown and it's something else you've done in your past, put that crown on right now <laughs> and move through it. You just have to, you just have to, because otherwise they're, they're out to destroy us. <laughs> you know, and mm. it can't be done if you have that inner, in that inner voice. Yeah. That's what I would tell them. And if I were to ask the question to myself, I would say, I would recommend to build a network outside the their workplace, outside the company. And that's precisely what change agents worldwide enabled me to do so yeah. wonderfully because that creates sort of portable competencies and friends and supporters and allies that empowers you because then you don't rely exclusively on your employer for credibility, for recognition, uh, a sense of self-worth, etc. So that would be my recommendation. Build external relationships as early as possible in your career. I'm so glad you're saying this. It's too easy to forget that. And I think back, it was actually here in Austin. I'm in Austin, Texas again. I moved back to Austin. That I gave a speech, not a speech, a talk, like a lecture with a friend of mine who worked for Indeed. I think he's still at Indeed. To a class at UT, UT, Austin, Texas. Here's a big, big school. And I said the exact same thing. I said, listen, Build your network right now. Every person you know in the university who's your friend, that's your that's your database. That's the the foundation upon which you will grow your career. And most of us, in my certainly in my demographic, the way that anything ever happened, it's through someone we knew. It's very rare that you're going to find, mm. you know, you're going to you're going to get that Hollywood and Vine moment where somebody's going to discover you, even though I kind of did that with change agents, but that was, that was rare. But most of the time, if you really want something in your life, it's going to be someone, you know, who's going to help you. So it's building those relationships. I'm still working on that, <laughs> but, um, but <laughs> it's uh, it is a skill. And I do, I, I absolutely agree with you. Agree with you hundred percent on that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So Susan, we're coming to the end of uh, this this talk, but I wanted to ask you, I said in the beginning, I admire you for your resilience. You've been a lot through in through your life so far, highs and lows. So where do you find the energy to cope? Where does your resilience come from? Well, I've been thinking of writing a book called the happy narcissist, (laughs) you know, I mean, it is really this, this sort of self-confidence, you know, it's this, listen, 
I'm in the worst situation I could possibly be in right now. But then I just have to laugh about it because I've been in amazing situations. I've been in, I, my life has taken me to places that I could never, never have predicted when I was younger. So I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. There might be a spiritual thing to it. There might be that I feel that I'm protected in some way in the universe. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't, I try not to let the bad things bury me. I really do. I really just try to move through the the bad times and recognize when I'm at a high, when I'm in like an, a moment that is kind of unbelievable, kind of a pinch me moment that this really happened. I also recognize, okay, this is temporary and this is, you know, enjoy this for the moment, but this is not the rest of your life. This is a highlight and you should write about it. <laughs> but, but tomorrow could be a terrible day. So it's just that, that ebb and flow of life, just being able to regulate your progress on your own personal journey. I mean, we're all the star of our own biopic when you think about it, right? And uh, just know that you're the leading character and you can play that role any way you want, right? And you talked about the power of writing. Uh, recently, you discovered the power of photography yeah, as well, right? I did. So that photography really saved my life out there in South Dakota. It was also, so you know my story, that uh, it was a healing journey that I really had to take to learn who I am what I really care about, how I can make my way in the world. I had not had time throughout my professional life to do that because I was raising kids, getting them to college, you know, that whole thing. But by that time in my life, you know, I'm in my 60s, right? I needed that time to reflect, but I kept finding myself in these beautiful, <laughs> these amazingly gorgeous scenes. And I don't really even know, I'm, I'm confessing this now on a, on a podcast, but I don't really even know how to use a camera, but I do know a beautiful scene. And that photography in combination with me, all right, my favorite quote about South Dakota is, it's 77,000 square miles of ego death, <laughs> right? So it it teaches you, it humbles you. When you are out in the middle of nowhere with nothing, you are nothing. But there's a shred of like atomic connection to the rest of the world where you are now a blade of grass, you are now a cloud. You know, you're just in the middle of this vast expanse where there's not a human being in sight it's extremely humbling. And it, it did a world of good for me. It made me a better person. But photography was was the the gift that the, I guess, that channeled through me that the rest of the world can appreciate. <laughs> and, and I love that we're ending on this note of uh, that speaks about art. Art is in the subtitle of the book, The Art of Relational Leadership. It speaks about connection. It speaks about the death of ego this humility and uh, all these are uh, extremely important qualities uh, and um, enablers, I think, of good work. So I love that it's ending on this note. Susan, what would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? So I've been thinking about this and I really thought that what I would recommend for everyone who's, who listens and who's a fan, you know, you have so many fans now, which is great, is Definitely give it to your colleagues at work, but my my instinct is they're just going to think this is too hard. They're going to think, I love this. I love these ideas, but 
I think the best advice I could give is give it away to every graduate, every every individual, female, male, non-binary, every single individual who is graduating, whether even high school, college, this is the blueprint for the future and they can build it. The younger generation, they can build this. They can see, yes, this is the world I want to live in. And you give them prescriptive advice on how to do it. And I feel like it may be too late for our generation. I hate to say that because I know you have a, a consulting career, <laughs> but but the younger generation, even Gen X, you know, even you know, people who are coming up now, I would say get this into the hands of everyone who really, really wants to aspire to make a big change in the world. That's what that's what I would recommend, for sure. Oh, thank you, Susan. Uh, it's been wonderful to speak with you. I, I will um, post, of course, all links below the the podcast for people to find you, to read what you recommend them to read, uh, watch, uh, etc. It's been a real, real pleasure. And I've, I'm so happy and so thrilled to be your friend. Aww. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> and uh, we keep in touch. Okay. Thanks, Aline. I appreciate you. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together. <laughs>